0: All right, so what I want you to do this morning is I want you to take your uh, Bibles and open to the book of John, uh, John chapter 9. It's where we are in our study. And I'm going to read down through verse uh, 34. John chapter 9, starting in verse 13. They brought to uh, the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day in which Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And they said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered and said to them, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he speaks for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know uh, this man is a sinner. Therefore he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But the one thing I do know is that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, you do not want to become his disciple too, do you? They reviled him and said, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke, God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, there has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us, and they put him out. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for an opportunity to open your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to see uh, the truth uh, contained in this portion of scripture that we're studying this morning and uh, we uh, pray these things in Christ's name amen well we are continuing in our study here in uh, Rome in uh, John chapter 9 if you weren't with the la- last time you might want to grab a copy of that sermon and listen to it so you can be up to speed with us we covered quite a bit of uh, information last time Uh, We began to look at this chapter last last time that in its entirety deals with this one issue of Jesus' miraculous healing of this man who was born blind. Now, I've entitled this morning's sermon, When Unbelief Examines a Miracle, because that's pretty much what's going on here. When Unbelief Examines a Miracle, then I subtitled it, uh, We Know, We Do Not Know, and Then How Do You Know? Now, I hope you caught that emphasis as I was reading through the text there, because you see that issue of knowing or not knowing something uh, it comes up several times in the chapter by several different uh, individuals verse 20 for instance his parents answered and said we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but how he now sees we do not know or who opened his eyes we do not know pharisees speaking in verse 24 a uh, second time they called a the man who'd been blind and said to him give glory to god for we know this man speaking of jesus this man is a sinner he answered and said verse 25 whether he's a sinner i do not know but the one thing i do know whereas i was blind now i see again the pharisees verse 29 we know that god has spoken from moses but as for this man we do not know where he's from verse 30 the man answered and said to them well here's an amazing thing that you you religious individuals right you religious leaders here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from yet he opened my eyes verse 31 we know that God, hear, God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. The portion concludes in verse 33, says, uh, this man, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? How can you be certain about what you know? In, in philosophy, it's called epistemology. And you've heard people dogmatically and authoritatively stand up and say well we know evolution is a fact we know uh, that god uh, that jesus never claimed to be god right you hear people make those kind of claims all the time claims of dogmatic authoritarianism that comes with a certain amount of knowledge we know well then the question is well how do you know because often whatever the situation is when you examine the evidence you'll discover that there is knowledgeable there are knowledgeable people usually on both sides of almost every issue so again the questioner remains, how do you know with certainty what you think you believe right how do you know with certainty what you know you say you believe in now when it comes to the issue of spiritual truth spiritual issues especially in the day in which we live Uh, where the view is there's no such thing as absolute truth anywhere, and there's no such thing as absolute truth, especially in the spiritual realm. When it comes to the issue of spiritual truth, everybody thinks it's fair game to hold their own opinion, their own subjective opinion, their own biased opinion based on their own personal experience, ideas, or thoughts. So again, in a time in which we live, where there's uh, no uh, universal truth that is commonly accepted and believed, because the only standard of, external standard of uh, evaluation of the truth has been completely uh, abandoned by the culture, that being the Word of God. So with no absolute standard, everybody makes up their own standard. Everybody does what is right in his or her own eyes, just like in the day of the judges. But again, most especially in the uh, spiritual realm. Because in the day in which we live, if you come and claim to have absolute knowledge, if you come to claim and have absolute truth... Uh, and therefore, by making a claim that your understanding of truth is the absolute truth, therefore all other claims, therefore by default and logic, are an uh, error. Then you're going to be nar- you're going to be um, labeled as narrow-minded. You're going to be labeled as bigoted. Especially again in the day in which we live, because the value of all values is tolerance, right? Open-mindedness. That's the prevailing value of our day: uh, tolerance over truth. But it's interesting, and you know this, but Jesus often made exclusive claims, and he did that repeatedly. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's an exclusive claim. And that exclusive claim excludes all other possibilities or other all other possible suggested ways of coming to the Father. Jesus says, you're not getting in through the prophet. You're, you're not getting in through the Pope. Jesus said, John eight twenty four, I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Again, both of those statements that I just read are claims that are either truthful or they are false. You can't have an in between. So again, the question is, how do you know with certainty what you believe to know? or believe that you know? How do you know it to be true? Stephen Cole puts forward an axiom, a self-evident truth that I think is helpful as way of a background when we begin to look at this text. He says, how do you know what you know, especially in the spiritual realm? And he says this, true spiritual knowledge is founded on Jesus Christ opening our eyes, but sin hinders us from true spiritual knowledge. That's a great statement. True spiritual knowledge is founded on Jesus Christ opening our eyes, but sin hinders us from true spiritual knowledge. Now, the only way that we'd know anything about God, that we'd know anything about him, is that God would choose to reveal himself to us, right? And we understand from the Bible that he's done that very thing. He's, uh, he's uh, done that, he's explained himself to us both through creation and through his word. Through creation and through his word, his word written, the Bible, and his word, his word incarnate that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. John 1 and 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And repeatedly so far in our study of the book of John, we've seen that Jesus claims to have been sent from God the Father to reveal the Father to us. John 1 and 18, it says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten, who is born in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And again repeatedly Jesus makes claims along the lines of the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me John 5:36 John 5:37 the Father sent me John 6:38 for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but of the will of him who sent me So the truth is that God has sent his son into the world so that men might know him so that men might have a true understanding of spiritual truth Uh, A true understanding of who God is, what he's like in his nature and character, and what he's like in his tremendous love for mankind. Because God wants men to understand the true truth. Now again, I repeat it often, but it's the thesis. I didn't write the book of John. It's the thesis that's uh, why John wrote the book. And that thesis statement really comes out everywhere in this gospel. John 20 and 31, these things, this entire gospel, these things have been written that you may believe... Or another way that you could say that. These things have been written so that you might know with absolute certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's why John writes. He's writing that you might know with absolute certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing you might have life in his name. The flip side of that truth would be failing to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to result in internal condemnation eternal judgment but god wants men to know the truth god wants men to know the truth with absolute certainty the truth and then especially the truth regarding spiritual matters regarding matters of eternal life and eternal death god through the prophet ezekiel 33 verse 11 says say to them as i live declares the lord i take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways why will you die God men God wants men to repent. God wants men to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul, first Timothy chapter two, verse three God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, one mediator between also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Just one. Not many mediators, not many ways. 2 Peter 3 and 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but a patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, because that's the heart of God. He sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world because he has a tremendous love for this world. Jesus Christ, as Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. God wants people to know the truth because the truth will what? The truth will... Set you free. Right? The truth will set you free. You shall know the truth. John 8, and 32, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. Paul 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will people numb to, people need to come to a knowledge of the truth because apart from the truth you're not under the power of uh, of god but you're under the power of the devil himself and the devil himself is a liar he's a murderer and the devil desires that men would perish eternally just like he will the devil desires that men would perish eternally and suffer just like he himself will suffer because of his rebellion against the most high god Therefore, the devil constantly assails the truth. He constantly plays down the truth. He constantly promotes lies, such as, "You don't believe there's a devil, do you?" I mean, we're so beyond that. We're so sophisticated in the day we live. There's no such thing as a devil. The devil promotes lies. as, you know what? There are many ways to heaven. Look at all these religions. Look at all these people. All these wonderful things that they're doing. There's many ways. Many mediators the devil and his uh, ilk come along and say, well, you know what? We we don't want to be overly dramatic or overly um, dogmatic about stuff. You know, I mean, the the truth is divisive, doctrinal truth especially. So niceness is more important than doctrinal truth and niceness is more important uh, than precision. Therefore, we just have to all get along, try to all live our our best lives now and kind of tone it down a little bit. Right? Don't be so uh, driving so hard. That's the lies of the devil. God wants people to know truth. Let me tell you what. Truth always stands up under examination, and truth always begs to be examined. Error always wants to be accepted. That's how you tell. Error always wants to be accepted. Truth wants to be examined. Truth says, examine me in light of the only standard of truth, the word of God. Error says, let me in. Accept me. Can't we just all get along? Paul warned Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 and 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He's saying in the latter times, men are going to listen to lies over the truth. Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, are again the lies of the devil and those men who work from him and those men take people away from the true truth so again true spiritual knowledge is only founded on the person of jesus christ by him opening our eyes but it's sin that hinders us from true spiritual knowledge and we're going to see that principle played out the axiom played out here in this uh, interaction with this man born blind in the pharisees so again john writes that people might know the truth that people might believe with absolute certainty that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, he might have life in his name. Now, while the entire purpose of the, of the book of John is so that people will come to a knowledge of the truth, we've also seen from the very beginning of this book in our study together that there is an intentional rejection of the truth. John 1 and 11 he came to his own, and those who were not his own did not or those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. John one, verse eleven. So in the Gospel of John, you always have belief and unbelief right side by side together in the Gospel. So John is writing that people ought to have a knowledge of the truth, the true truth, that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is, that men might have salvation through him, that they might have life through him. But very often you see in the same gospel, you see that many people refuse to believe the truth. And if you refuse to believe the truth, there's nothing left for you to believe except for a lie. And when people refuse to believe the truth, therefore they have chosen for themselves eternal death. So says Jesus Christ, John 8, 24, I say therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he will die in your sin. John 3 and 17 says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes, verse 18, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, right? That's true truth. And then the sad fact again is the vast majority of the people so far in the book of John have refused to believe the truth especially the so-called religious leaders uh, of israel they live in spiritual darkness sin has blinded them to the place where they think they are children of god serving him when in reality the truth incarnate the person of the lord jesus christ himself has told them repeatedly that they're actually sons of their father who is the devil and they're not sons of the father in heaven They're blind to that reality, blind to the person of Jesus Christ. They live in spiritual darkness. Because sin, their sin, has blinded them to the fact of the reality they don't know the true and the living God. And of course, unfortunately, we see that same kind of situation a lot of people throughout the world today. Whether people come from religious backgrounds or non-religious backgrounds, it's irrelevant. Because the only way that a person can ever come to a true knowledge of the truth is by repentance and faith in the light of the world. Mankind's only hope, the Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who again said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Because again, when men reject truth, when men reject revelation, when men reject the word of God, they stand outside of the place of hope and help. And when men reject hope, or when men reject revelation, they've sealed uh, uh, their eternal destinies. And they've sealed their eternal destiny in damnation because they've chosen to reject the truth. They have chosen to reject true knowledge of the truth. And again, that's what we're going to see in our text today. And what we're going to see in the text is uh, we study, again, uh, belief and unbelief right side by side. Uh, We're going to see that unbelief is willful. Unbelief is willful. Unbelief is Uh, truth-rejecting. Unbelief is an intentional, active hardening of the heart. Uh, Unbelief is inexcusable. And unbelief is irrational. Again, Jesus said back uh, earlier in in John chapter 5, he says to to the religious leaders, and it's really a statement to all unbelievers, he says, John 5 and forty, you, you're, you're unwilling to come to me. You are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. That's the unbeliever's position, unwilling. In spite of all the evidence to the deity of Christ, they're unwilling, unwilling to come, unwilling to be saved, that they might have life. And as I've told you previously, the supreme problem with men and sin, the supreme problem with unbelief and unbelievers is always their pride. Unbelief, listen to me, unbelief is never based on evidence. It's never based on the issue of evidence. Because we'll see it in the text today that unbelief is never satisfied with evidence. There's never enough evidence. There's not enough evidence to come to an understanding that Jesus is more than just a man or more than just some some religious teacher, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, whom everybody in the town knows has been dead for four days, uh, he raises him from the dead, John chapter 11, still in that context, men are going to refuse to believe. Not even when Jesus gives sight to a blind man that everybody knows who walked in and out of the temple that this man was blind, he gives sight to the blind and men still refuse to believe. And not even when Jesus Christ himself raises himself from the dead, men are still going to refuse to believe because evidence is not the issue with unbelief. Unbelief is nothing more than arrogance and pride. Unbelief is one of the effects of the fall that takes man to utter depravity, and it's the depraved mind that does not work properly that is being evidenced, put on display. The arrogance of fallen man believes that there is no God but himself. Right? When a man says there's no God, he's making claim to absolute knowledge. He, in essence, is saying, I'm deity. I'm omniscient. I know all things. I have all knowledge I need. I have all the wisdom I need. And we know there's no God. It's the pride of education, the pride of knowledge, pride of intellect, the pride of achievement that makes the man in sin self-sufficient. Again, the modern intellectual man rejects Revelation. Says he doesn't need God. Doesn't need the Bible. We know nobody believes that old book. We know. My great understanding, my great wisdom has given me all the knowledge I need to navigate life. Modern man doesn't need any help. He understands everything. He's autonomous. That's unbelief entirely self-sufficient, entirely self-centered, glorifying self, because he will not glorify God. Therefore, he rejects Christ. Now, the text before us is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And we're going to see, as I entitled the message, Unbelief Examining a Miracle. The man born blind is being examined. The story itself is uh, spectacular enough But as we work our way through the text, you'll see some of the characteristics that I've just mentioned, some of the characteristics that are common amongst all unbelievers, characteristics that you should recognize when you try to share truth or when you have tried to share truth with people. You go, oh, yeah, I see that. You'll see such things as unbelief is inconsistent. You'll see that unbelief is unwilling to accept evidence. You'll see that unbelief is irrational. Unbelief is insolent or unbelief is hostile towards the truth all those things come out in the text now very quickly because we some of us weren't here last week go back to the top of the chapter and i'm just going to read a few verses i'm going to kind of get a running start here again we went through great detail the these verses so if you weren't here you might want to grab a copy of that so we saw the miraculous power of the person of christ we saw, obviously, the demonstration of his deity. We also talked about the spiritual implications of blindness because the Bible often uses blindness as a, uh, physical blindness as a metaphor uh, speaking to man's uh, spiritual condition, his lost condition. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So again, in the context, Jesus has just left the temple. All right, he's been in the temple teaching for an extended period of time. And after repeatedly making the claim that he's God, he's the great I am, God come in the flesh. After being continually rejected by the religious leaders of Israel who want him dead, who in fact have taken up stones to stone him. But the compassionate Christ sees this man who is in need. Again, as he passed by, he saw... A man blind from birth, verse 2. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? Remember I told you they turned it into a theological discussion instead of being concerned compassionately about this man as Christ is. Jesus, verse 3, answered, said, It was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he says, verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as the day, night is coming, when no man can work again it's a statement of urgency because we're only about six months or so away from the the cross we must work the works of him who sent me it's a call on these individuals it's a call on us to redeem the time time is short time's running out it's an opportunity for us to remember the urgency of the need around us the people are perishing without the gospel and without christ christ felt compassion he reached out in compassion to those around him he reached out in compassion to this uh, man who is in need and uh, Again, as his followers, will we do that to a lost world around us? In the culture, I understand it's all screwed up with its meaning of Christmas. But it's probably your best built into the calendar opportunity on a cultural level to try to direct the attention towards the truth. Right? Take advantage of the season. Most people don't know the truth because... Most people don't know the truth because most people don't know the truth. And the people who know the truth need to tell the people who don't know the truth the truth so that people can come to a knowledge of the truth and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and might have life in his name, right? So take opportunities of the season. You don't have to get into a debate with somebody because evidence is not the issue anyway, right? It's a hard issue. Verse 5, while I'm in the world... I am the light of the world. Verse six. When he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of uh, of the spittle and applied the clay to the eyes, to his eyes. He said, "Go wash in the pool of Siloam," which translated means "Sent." And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Again, by the power of Christ, by following just a simple act of obedient faith, the man who was born blind now has eyes that see. Verse 8, his neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not that one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Others were still saying, No, but it's somebody like him. So rather than believing the obvious, rather, rather than believing that a miracle occurred in their presence, the crowd wants to believe that perhaps there's some kind of uh, situation here, some kind of case of mistaken identity. But the man kept saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. Well, maybe it's somebody else. Maybe I'm the one. Well, you know, maybe it's just somebody looking. I'm the one. He kept saying it over and over again. I'm the one. Verse 10, therefore they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? Verse 11, he answered, he said, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. Verse 12, and they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. I mean, how could he know he was blind? He doesn't even know what he looks like, right? Doesn't even know what doesn't even know what look-likes means, right? He has no idea. Where is he? I don't know. Verse 13. They brought the Pharisees to the Pharisees, him who was formerly blind. Well, who's that? Well, in the context, it appears to be the neighbors. Back up in verse 8. Those who had previously seen this blind beggar who knew he was blind so they bring this man to the pharisees who are again supposedly the religious leaders of the nation of israel who supposedly knew god who supposedly knew god's word uh, the theological elites if you will and i mean look this is a spectacular miracle right this is a spectacular miracle that needs investigation now some people have suggested over the years that perhaps the people brought this man who was formerly blind uh, to the pharisees out of good motives to perhaps show that uh, jesus who they were persecuting really is a good man if we just present some more evidence then they'll they'll get on board with it right but the reality is more than likely the neighbors bring this man to the pharisees because again the religious leaders the religious leaders of israel exercise absolute control over the people and they do that by intimidation by intimidation look down at verse 22 His parents said this because, listen, they were afraid of the Jews. Now, remember I told you that every time John uses that little uh, uh, um, phraseology, he's using the religious religious leaders, the Jews, those who are hostile towards Christ. That's the way he uses that phraseology all through his gospel. For the Jews, he said, the parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, they should be put out of the synagogue. Now, we don't get it in our culture, but in this culture, to be uh, put out of the synagogue or unsynagogue would be the greatest tragedy that could ever occur in anybody's life on a personal level. That, that meant that you were cursed of society. Uh, that meant that you were cut off from your people, that you were cut off from your job, your friends, your family, your community, if you will. It meant to literally becoming an outcast instantaneously. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now again, remember the religious leaders of Israel, they want to kill Jesus, and everybody knows that. It's a well-known fact. And remember also that they had been already discrediting Jesus, saying he's a Samaritan. What does that mean? Well, it means he's a, he's a half-breed, he's a false teacher. Now, they had said repeatedly that he has a demon, that he's insane, he's of Satan, not of God. Therefore, the religious leaders have already created a law against the people who would confess that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Therefore, people are fearful of being cast out from the community. One writer puts it like this. He says, in a culture of fear, listen carefully, because this has absolute modern application, I guarantee you. Far beyond the text. In a culture of fear, people tend to keep their distance from anything that would get them in trouble with the authorities. That's how communist regimes operate. If you know that your neighbor criticizes the government and you don't report him, the authorities will come after you. If you do report him, you'll get extra credit for supporting the state. So the neighbors hear that Jesus, whom the religious leaders were trying to get rid of, has healed the beggar. They think we need to take him to the Pharisees so that we don't get into trouble. Now, I think that view is spot-on, as they say. I think it's especially accurate in view of verse 14. Now, it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened the eyes. So, in doing so, in healing this man on the Sabbath, Jesus has violated rabbinical law. And the people are in fear of the religious leaders, fear of being cursed in their society. They're under this heavy penalty. Uh, they turn this man in because they believe that Jesus has violated rabbinical law by healing this man on the Sabbath, and they don't want to be as seen as those who are against the state or as those who are against the religious authorities of the day. Now, right up front, what you need to understand is that Jesus has not violated any of God's Sabbath regulations revealed in Scripture, but he has very much intentionally ignored the restrictions and the extra biblical applications that the rabbis have placed upon the sabbath he has violated the extra biblical traditions of men not god's word now the religious leaders of the time had heaped up a variety of burdens on the sabbath that god never intended right the scribes and the, the pharisees that uh, the religious leaders had worked all of these details out in order to uh, constitute uh, uh, what would be a work you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So what would we work uh, on the Sabbath? They so had these, all, all these various rules uh, that were strictly forbidden by the religious leaders. According to the uh, commentator, historian Barclay, William Barclay he says, here are some of the things that were forbidden on the Sabbath. A man may, fill, uh, may not fill a dish with oil and put it beside a lamp and put the end of the wick in it. So he's saying, look, you couldn't fill a lamp with oil on a Sabbath. You couldn't light the wick. And you also, if you couldn't light it, you couldn't blow it out because that would be work. Here's a good one. If you went outside on the Sabbath and you had nails in your sandals to hold them together, I guess they didn't have tennis shoes at that time. If you went outside on the Sabbath and you had nails in your sandals to hold them together, that would make you guilty of carrying weight on the Sabbath. That would be a violation of the religious leader's Sabbath laws. You could not cut your fingernails or pull out your Hair of your beard or of your head. I mean, they heap burden after burden, ridiculous rules. Sabbath violations included healing, unless you were near death. Uh, you could give medical attention, but could only be given if you were actually in danger of dying, and then only enough medical attention to keep uh, attention to keep you uh, alive, to keep you from getting worse, but nothing to make you better until after the Sabbath. If you had a toothache, you could not pull your tooth out on the Sabbath. For some reason, you could suck vinegar. That's great. (laughs) It was forbidden to uh, set a broken limb, a limb, you know, a broken leg, broken arm, whatever. If a man had a foot or an arm that was dislocated, he couldn't put cold water on it. So, because this man who is clearly born blind is not in danger of his life, according to the ridiculous rules and regulations of the religious leaders... Jesus broke their Sabbath when he healed them. Did you know that there was actually rules? <laughs> Seems like a good rule, but there was actually rules against spreading saliva on the Sabbath. They go, amen, right? Well, why would they have a rule like that? Well, because they believed at the time that saliva had some kind of medicinal value. So you weren't allowed to spread saliva on the Sabbath. One reading says this, As to fasting spittle, it is not lawful to put it so much as even upon the eyelids. Hmm. Guess what? That's a dumb rule. (laughs) One, I don't know why we need a rule like that. Two, it's dumb. And three, that's exactly what Jesus just did. Probably because of the first two. It's exactly what Jesus did, right? He made a clay, a mixture of clay from dust and saliva. Therefore, according to their standards, Jesus was guilty of kneading, K-N-E-E-D. What's kneading? When you take bread and, and flour and water and he, he was guilty of kneading, guilty of manual labor. So these neighbors who live under this fear of this kind of tyrannical religious uh, leadership, they know that, G- that the religious leaders have a tremendous animosity towards the person of Jesus Christ. They even want to kill him. And in their eyes, according to the religious leaders' rules that they've heaped up on the Sabbath, Jesus has broken the Sabbath. Therefore, they take this man in because, again, no one wants to be seen against the... to be seen as standing against the religious rulers. Right? So they take him in out of fear. Now again, Jesus did not violate God's law. When he healed on the Sabbath, he was acting against the Pharisaical interpretation of the law, against their particular uh, man-made rules. And as you know from the text of the Scripture, there are several times when Jesus intentionally healed a person on the Sabbath. For example, Simon Peter's mother-in-law in Peter's home, Mark one; uh, the man who had the withered hand in the synagogue, Mark three; this man born blind here in John nine crippled woman in the synagogue Luke 13 the man with dropsy which is just an inflammatory uh, disorder of the limbs in, in a Pharisee's house Luke 14 a, a demon possessed man in Capernaum again Mark chapter 1 and then back in chapter 5 of the book of John the man he healed at the pool of Bethesda and every time that Jesus publicly healed somebody on the Sabbath the Pharisees turned around and accused him of breaking Sabbath law But Jesus' response was always consistent. Jesus' response was that he was always working the works of his Father. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He can do whatever he wants to do on the Sabbath. Mark 2 and 28, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So again, when Jesus healed the man back in chapter 5 at the Pool of Bethesda, uh, the Pharisees went after him when he healed him on the Sabbath. And again, he did it on the Sabbath, and he said, My Father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. God doesn't rest on the Sabbath, neither do I rest on the Sabbath. Then they accused him of blasphemy because he made himself equal with God. But he paid no attention to the rules. He paid no attention to the rules that the religious leaders heaped upon the Sabbath that in fact made the Sabbath, listen, the worst day of the week. Mark 2 and 27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God intended the Sabbath to be a day of comfort, a day of rest, a day of joy, a day of uh, Uh, enjoyment a day of refreshment a day to rest uh, for the benefit of mankind for him mentally and physically after working all week a day of rest and a day to redirect his attention away from the daily routines of his life to the person of god himself but unfortunately the religious leaders had turned the sabbath into an unbelievably uh, ridiculous burden so jesus purposefully violated their sabbath He purposefully violated the laws that they had invented, not God's laws. Matthew 15, 9, You have substituted the traditions of men for the commandments of God. So again, the Pharisees had so conflated their own standards, uh, their own standard of holiness uh, with God's standard of holiness, they had so conflated their own standard that they actually attacked the Lord Jesus Christ himself for breaking the Sabbath law. But Jesus kept God's law just didn't keep their law. And the basic reason that Jesus healed on the Sabbath was that people were in need of his help. People were in need of his help. And and God's mercy doesn't have a calendar. Jesus healed on the Sabbath because that glorified God. It, It showed God's goodness. It showed God's compassion towards men. Jesus healed on the Sabbath because it displayed his Divine authority, His divine power. Jesus healed on the Sabbath because it put the truth on display concerning who He actually is. Jesus healed on the Sabbath in order to reveal the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their religious system. Because the Pharisees had actually sanctioned that it was okay on the Sabbath to take care of an animal that was in need. And they lived in an agrarian society. They had animals. The animal needs uh, to be taken care of, falls into a ditch, you pull them out, right? That, that's a normal part of life in this kind of society. But they hypocritically denied God extending mercy to men on that day. And if the religious leaders had exceptions to the rules of their Sabbath for animals, shouldn't God be able to help man on the Sabbath? another situation over in mark 7 where i saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled hands right let's say with unwashed hands they found fault they being the religious leaders I mean, these guys had all kinds of rules and all kinds of uh, things that they heaped up on this day and jesus always obeyed perfectly the law of god he paid no regard to the commandments of men just dismissed it outright therefore jesus leaves us a great example to not be brought under the bondage of men by heeding men's rules and regulations that have no support from the Bible. Richard Phillips, the commentator, says this. Most, he says, uh, uh, people always have a tendency to erect their own rules by way of making themselves righteous by their works. Some religious people say that one must never go to the movies or dine in a restaurant that serves alcohol or wear stylish clothes, but these prohibitions are not found in the Bible. Worse, he says, such rules are fairly easy to keep so that some people think themselves righteous by observing them. Man-made rules encourages us to look down proudly on others rather than to humble ourselves before God. In contrast, God's perfect and holy law is designed to show us our sin and to bring us to God for mercy. Phillips asks, How should Christians respond to such man-made traditions? And then he invokes Matthew Henry. He says Matthew Henry tells us what Jesus did. Matthew Henry says he would not. Jesus would not seem to yield to this usurped power of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their government was illegal. Their impositions were arbitrary. Their zeal for the rituals consumed the substantials of their religion. Therefore, Christ would not give them place by subjection, not even one hour. Matthew Henry goes on, Christ chose to work his cures on the Sabbath day to dignify and sanctify the day? To intimate that special cures could be wrought mostly on the Christian Sabbath. He asks, How many blind eyes have seen, or how many blind eyes have been opened by the preaching of the gospel on the Lord's Day? The blessed eye self, he says, of the of the Lord's Day. How many impotent souls cured on the Lord's Day? And the preacher works on a The Lord's Day. It's not the Sabbath, right? The works of God, the mercies of God towards men. Jesus purposefully violated the religious leader Sabbath laws that they imposed upon men to expose their hypocrisy. The religious leaders prided themselves on keeping their law to the legalistic minutiae, hair-splitting rules that they invented... For the Sabbath, that they said, Well, look how good we are, because we kept all the rules that we made. And at the same time, they ignored they ignored the far more important issues, such as showing mercy to men. That's why Jesus excoriated them in Matthew 23, 4. He says, They tie up heavy loads and they lay on them, they, they, lay, they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move such as a finger. False religious leaders had corrupted the Sabbath. They they turned it into a day of glorifying God and a means of rest and refreshment from labor into a day of legalistic self-glorification. Jesus shows us that work on the Sabbath of necessity, work on the Sabbath that demonstrates God's compassion and mercy towards men, that elevates the glory of God, is permissible always, even on the Sabbath. they brought to the pharisees him who was formerly blind Now that was the sabbath day when jesus made clay and opened his eyes verse 15 again therefore the pharisees were also asking him how he received his sight again it says again because back in verse 10 the neighbors had asked the same question how then were your eyes open he answered them and now he's answering the pharisees on how he received his sight and listen he just gives a very straightforward answer he said to them he applied clay to my eyes i washed and i see Just a very straightforward testimony. He just told them what he knew to be true. Just an honest answer before Christ's open enemies. Just an honest answer before the open enemies of Christ. Now, the reaction is exactly what you'd expect it to be, verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, you've got to stop for a moment here and back up a little bit and look at the obvious. Did you notice that these Pharisees never asked this man if the situation was true? They never asked him if it was true that he was born blind and now has received a sign. They never asked him if he has indeed been cured. You know why? They don't care. They don't care. They don't care a bit. You'll also notice that there's no rejoicing, no joy in this text, or with the fact that the man who was born blind now has his sight. Because again, these religious leaders don't care one bit about this beggar. Matthew Henry remarks, their enmity to Christ has divested them. Their enmity to Christ has divested them of all manner of humanity. They don't care about him. They only care about their religious rules, their religious rituals that they themselves have invented so that they can say they're holy and more holy than everybody else. And they only care about trying to find a way to discredit Jesus Christ. Again, the religious leaders of Israel have already made up their minds. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So again, they're not interested in an honest evaluation of the events in front of them. Because if you really wanted to know the truth, then you would do an investigation, right? You do an investigation, and then you come up with a conclusion concerning your investigation. But these men have already come up with their conclusion before they've even examined the evidence or investigated the situation. And the conclusion is this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. This man, Jesus, doesn't keep all their rules, all their ridiculous trifling little rules that they have invented on the Sabbath, that they've heaped on the Sabbath. Therefore, their conclusion is this man is not from God. So again, here again is the irrationality of unbelief on display. It doesn't matter if this man has been healed, this man who was born blind. It doesn't matter. It's not the issue for them. He does not keep our Sabbath rules. Therefore, we know this man can't be from God. Now again, back away again, the the, the religious leaders have already determined that they want to murder Jesus Christ. They want to murder the person of Jesus. They've already rejected him in total. They want to murder him. Previous chapter, chapter 8, verse 59, as he's exiting the temple, they pick up stones to throw at him. So they want him dead. We already know. This man, it's interesting, they won't even use his name. They won't call him Jesus. They just call him this man. Because, again, they've already made up their minds, and the conclusion is, we know this man is not from God. Now, again, don't overlook this reality, this truth, that not only the Pharisees distort the truth uh, and the word of God concerning the Sabbath, making it, again, the most unpleasant day of the week, perverting the Sabbath for their own promotion of their own personal works of righteousness, and instead of, again, a, has a day of honoring and resting God, glorifying God, exalting in God's divine grace. These men, as James Boyce once commented, these men were ready to kill Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, but they were not prepared to let him heal on the Sabbath. Do you get that? When you're talking to an unbeliever who cannot see And you think you just entered into a crazy conversation. You just entered into a crazy conversation. Because they can't see what they can't see. These men were ready to kill Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, but they were not prepared to let him heal on the Sabbath. That's the depraved mind. That's a mind that does not function properly. That's the mind that's blinded by sin, blinded by Satan. And again, it's a great demonstration of the irrationality of unbelief. It's a great demonstration, again, that unless Christ opens blind eyes spiritually and men humble themselves under the word of God, men have no hope of ever coming to a knowledge of the true truth. And again, the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus is exactly the way it is with a lot of people who claim not to believe in Jesus, even in our day. Because they say we know. We know that Jesus is not God. We know that Jesus is not God to come in the flesh. We know that Jesus never claimed to be God. We we know that there's no way that miracles are possible. We know that this man doesn't have the power, didn't have the power to create miracles. We know that there's no such thing as God in whom we're accountable and going to stand before one day and give an account for our life. We know. Intentional blindness, intentional hostility to the truth without so much as an honest investigation of the realities. So immediately, based with a biased approach, with these uh, so-called religious leaders who are going to, quote-unquote, investigate the miracle, they've already made up their mind in advance, right? We know. We know this man is not from God. And since these men already know this, and since these men have already rejected the light, the person of the light, of the Lord Jesus Christ, their darkness is even more profound devoid of spiritual discernment. They're altogether incapable of determining what is permitted on the Sabbath and what is not permitted on the Sabbath and altogether incapable of properly evaluating the situation that's right in there, right in front of them. Arthur Pink says this, and thus finding fault with Christ because he had opened the eyes of this blind beggar on the Sabbath, they did but expose their ignorance and exhibit their own spiritual blindness. They, They just exposed themselves and the reality that they can't see on a spiritual level. And again, that's the way it is with all unbelief. Again, modern man thinks he's so wise. Modern man thinks he's uh, got so much intellect in in his understanding uh, because he has rejected God. He's rejected God's revelation, his great intellect. Again, we know the modern man knows there's no God. Where repeatedly, God in his word says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Hmm. Man's truth, God's truth. Man says we know there's no God. God says the fool has said in his heart there's no God. Man's proclamation of his so-called genius level intelligence and God's declaration of the truth that man with a fallen mind lives with a blackened heart in total darkness. We know. Man says we know there's no God. God says no, no, no. Romans chapter 1. I've made myself evident to all men. Therefore, all men are without excuse. Verse 16 again, therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, but he does not, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can this man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. So, again, don't overlook the very simple reality of the testimony that the man gives, just very straightforward testimony, must have been effective to some extent. Because at least some had apparently accepted the reality of the miracle. How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Well, again, most people don't believe, most men don't believe, there is a small majority that acknowledges that uh, if this man were not commissioned by God, if this man were not enabled by God, he couldn't possibly give sight to the blind man. Some commentators have gone too far to speculate, perhaps maybe Nicodemus was a part of that crowd. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea. Because it's pretty much the same argument uh, that uh, Nicodemus used back in John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know. We know that you come from God as a teacher. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him." Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when you introduce Jesus Christ into the conversation, it usually brings division. see division back in chapter 7, verse 12. You see it again in chapter 7, verses 40 through 43. You see it again in the future. In John chapter 10, verse 19, there arose a division amongst the Jews because of Jesus. How can this man who is a sinner perform such signs? There was a division among them because Jesus always brings division among people because the truth always separates error. And unbelief is always willfully hostile towards the truth verse 17 they said for they said therefore to the blind man again what do you say about him since he opened your eyes now again note the question is not so much an inquiry about the reality of the miracle it's more what do you think about this person who you say opened your eyes it's an inquiry about the person now some believe that this question is being asked by the group who's hostile towards christ who don't believe him uh, in him because they want to entrap this man. Others say, well, maybe it was a question asked by the, those who favored the Lord. Nevertheless, the answer that this man gives, listen, is nothing short of astounding. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Here's his answer. He said he's a prophet. Huh. Now, again, back away. Real, think of the reality of the situation here. This isn't a friendly question-and-answer situation. You tell me what you believe. You tell me what it meant to you. I'll tell you what it meant to me and how we all feel about it. Now, this is an inquisition. This is an inquisition by religious leaders that are actively hostile towards the person of Jesus Christ. And they're not really seeking information as much as they're interrogating this man who was born blind, but now he sees. They're not looking for the truth. They're looking for another reason to accuse Christ because he has broken their Sabbath. So again, the the attitude, the, the feel of the moment is hostile unbelief. And here's a man who was born blind. What does that mean? It means culturally, he would never have been in the temple. He wasn't in the temple. He was outside the temple when Christ saw him. He would have never been allowed into the temple because of his blindness. Because many of the day would have seen that physical deformity as a judgment upon, of God upon some sin in his life or, or his parents' life. So at the top of the chapter, right? Who, who, who caused this man sin or to be born blind? Him or his sin or his parents, right? So the man, the, the man who was born blind in the culture is an outcast. He's a man who's seen by the culture as somebody who's cursed of God. Again, that's the way people today would have seen anybody who had any kind of disease or deformity. They would have been in that kind of category. He's a beggar. He's not a man who's part of their system. Nobody paid attention to him. Everybody overlooked him. And he was untaught. He was untaught. Back up in verse 11, the man said, The man who is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go, wash. So I went away, wash, and I received sight. So here he is under the hostile questioning of the Pharisees. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said he is a prophet. Again, it is an astounding statement. Under the circumstances... He's not fazed. He's not intimidated by the moment. The man just speaks forth the truth of what he understands about Jesus. He's a prophet. And the very simplest explanation for that designation is he is referring to him as one who is divine. Because that's what prophets were. They were mouthpieces of God. So at first, the man is obviously occupied with the work of Christ because he's given him a sight. But now as time goes on in just a few moments, perhaps, he's beginning to discern the events that he's now a part of. And his understanding of really who Jesus is is beginning to grow. And he's beginning to see with sight that he didn't have before, physically or spiritually, he's beginning to see the glory of the person who's given him light. Sight again to the one who was once blind. So again, this beggar who'd once lacked the ability to perceive sight, perceive light physically, now touched by the grace, the mercy, the compassion of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the divine one, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he heals his blindness, the conclusion he comes to is obvious. Right? There's, no other, there's no other answer to it. This man who restored my spiritual or my physical physical sight it's giving me eyes to see on a spiritual level. The enemies of Christ ask again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he says, he's from God. He's someone sent from God. He's a prophet. Now, don't you think at this moment, perhaps the religious leaders were a tad bit irritated. They probably weren't pleased with him. But again, the man just makes the conclusion based on the miraculous power that he received through Christ. This is just the reality of it. The man just gives a straightforward, honest, reasonable answer to the events. Here's a man who was born blind. Now he sees because of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the conclusion, again, is unmistakable, listen, to those who want to see The conclusion is unmistakable to those who want to see. This man must be from God. The Pharisees ask, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He says, again, very straightforwardly, very boldly, very emphatically, he's from God. What do I I think about him? He's from God. He's a prophet. A, A little further on the interrogation, verse 32, this man who is formerly blind says, since the beginning of time it has never been heard that anyone born Anyone has opened his eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do this thing. He could do nothing. Evidence is there for those who want to see. But again, as I told you previously, unbelief is not concerned with evidence. Unconcerned is not. Unbelief is unconcerned with evidence. In fact, unbelief is hostile towards evidence. This once blind man can see the reality that the spiritually blind Pharisees refuse to see. That Jesus has been sent from God. Listen, his eyes are becoming clearer while the Pharisees' eyes are becoming what? Darker. Verse 18, the Jews. Again, that's the designation that John always uses for those hostile towards Christ. The Jews, therefore, did not believe him. that he'd been blind and now received his sight. J.C. Riles offers this. He says, We should mark the extraordinary unbelief of the Jewish people and their obstinate determination to shut their eyes against light. It teaches the folly of supposing that mere evidence alone will ever make men Christians. It is the want of will to believe and not the want of reason for believing that makes men infidels. That's a great quote. Therefore they did not believe of him. Uh, it, of him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents uh, of the very one who had received his sight. Now, that little phrase, until they called, doesn't mean that after they called this man's parents, he um, saw they believed. It, it just means that they were unbelieving until this point, and they called this parent, the parents, and they are still unbelieving, right? So so even after they called, they continued to remain in their unbelief. Uh, the, the until was just a, a, a time, a word of time to signify an interval of time and again refusing to believe the reality of what's in front of them looking for another option well let's go back to maybe it's a mistaken identity right that had been thrown out earlier maybe maybe that's where we should go they call the parents of the very one who'd received sight his sight verse 19 they question them saying is this your son who you say was born blind then how does he see or how does he now see so again, the enemies of the Lord are, again, trying to find a way to discredit this man. They want to discredit Christ. They want to discredit this man, whom you, you, you who say we're born blind. Call the parents in, insinuating maybe the parents are imposters. Maybe the parents are lying. Uh, maybe the, the, the parents are uh, deceitfully plotting on behalf of Christ uh, a false report that their son was blind. And in reality, he never was blind. Is this your son who you say was born blind? And then how does he see? Verse 20, his parents answered and said to them, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age. He shall speak for himself. Again, the parents answer very cautiously the question because of verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue for uh, this reason his parents said he is of age ask him verse 24 so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him give glory to god we know that this man is a sinner verse 25 he therefore answered whether he is a sinner i do not know the one thing i do know so wherefore i was blind now i see it's a wonderful miracle that had been performed, but these Jews, these haters, these enemies of Christ are determined not to see it or believe it. The simple testimony of a man who is a beneficiary of God's grace and God's power goes unheeded because the enmity and the hostility of the unregenerate mind is so great against the person of Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of overwhelming evidence, even in the midst of evidence, unbelief is hostile towards the truth, because unbelief rejects the truth unbelief fights against the truth it suppresses the truth and unrighteousness as paul says in romans 1 that's these men that's the heart of all unbelievers the pharisees just like all unbelievers reject the person of jesus christ because in their fallen heart in in their pride listen they don't want a savior they don't want a savior they want to be affirmed by their own merits They want to be affirmed by their own perceived goodness. They don't want to be forgiven. They want to be affirmed. Boy, because if they had had to confess the fact that they are sinners in need of grace, they'd have to admit, the religious leaders would have to admit that they are a part of the all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God group. And in their pride, they're unwilling to accept that truth. In their pride, they're unwilling to admit that truth. Rejecting the truth, rejecting the obvious, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, twisting the truth in willful unbelief. Pride will not allow the natural man to say he is a sinner in need of God's grace. The pride of the natural man refuses to accept the fact that he cannot fix himself. He refuses to believe the truth that there's no hope for him apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Because the natural man and unbelief loves darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And the natural man can't see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ because the liturgy God of this world has blinded his mind to the truth. Those who are perishing can't see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, who's the image of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. So again, no man can come to God, no man can come to Christ, no man can escape the eternal sentence of a condemnation that they're under, Unless Jesus Christ in his mercy opens blind eyes so that men might see his glory and be saved. Because again, it was Jesus who said in John 6 and 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All right? So lots more, but we're well out of time. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this wonderful look at truth, this wonderful display of your grace and power. Compassion to this man that was born blind and you put your glory on display through your Son, our Savior. And to those who see, as this man sees now physically, to those who see, we see the reality behind that power that you're exactly who you claim to be. Therefore, we worship you. And thank you for taking us from the realm of darkness into the realm of light, from removing the scales from our eyes, so that we might see the glory of your Son, our Savior, the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth. With the hymn writer, we were blind once, but now we see. And it's only because of your mercy and grace. Help us again at this time of a, the year to be mindful to those around us who are in deep need. The greatest need that we all have is coming to an understanding of the truth, to be saved and, not face you in condemnation but to enjoy you as our father savior redeemer friend and that's what all who have repented and placed their faith in christ stand before you as and we're so thankful for that And now we lord we thank you for an opportunity to celebrate your goodness through the lord's table And we pray your blessing on our time we pray in christ's name amen